Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Today's story comes from Scott Wilbanks. Scott is an artist and an author of one of my favorite books, The Lemoncholy Life of Annie Astor. I first came across this book in 2015 and practically read it in one sitting. In catching up with Scott in this conversation, I was reminded of the power of the four words someone once shared with him. Write what you know. What Scott knows in life is winning, soaring, leaping, life-changing accidents, lost loves, and new chapters. Most importantly, he knows how to tell a great story. From his early days as a gymnast to his life as a novelist and author, Scott shares his insights on the way his world and the world of writing continues to change all around us. Enjoy the conversation. We did talk about gymnastics in Houston and I was at Bannon's gym and that's what we talked about. That was the overlap that we were both gymnasts in um, 83 to 90. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I moved to San Francisco in 91. Okay. And Houston was kind of part and parcel of my coming out experience. What was that like in Texas? It was purgatory. It's just, you know, I mean, I mean, is there a worse place to grow up to, to come out? as an earnest young gay man, then, you know, Houston, Texas. Okay, fair enough. Fair, um, there are. So maybe I was being hyperbolic, but um, no, it was, it was hard. It was hard. I was gay bashed for the first time when I was 11 years old in the parking lot of a Taco Bell. I've had experience after experience. I've had eggs thrown at me. I've had knives pulled on me. I've had people literally want to kill me. Um, I actually had an encounter with a police officer who's, it was clear, he was basically trying to make me tremble with fear um, simply because he loathed me on, on side. So that aspect of growing up left an indelible impression. So, and actually it's very funny because it does in some ways have an impact on my writing. I struggle with writing yeah, but when you come out to your parents, you know, when they worry about aloneness or loneliness, which are two different things, obviously. Um, it's rooted really in their experience with children, right? So, you know, they're, they will never be alone because they have you. Who do you, who will you then have to keep you from being alone, you know, in your, in your senescence? My father, you know, was the head of the household, but my mom's always been the linchpin. She's the one who's always been drawing everybody together. I have a brother and a sister and we have you know, a very involved but complicated relationships with one another. 
I'm very, very close to both my brother. I'm especially close to my sister. We're attached to the hip. She's five and a half years younger than me. People, for the longest time, mistook us for twins. Um, and we did everything together. My brother and I had a much more complicated relationship growing up. There was too much competition. My brother and I were very different people. But then we've come, to, we've grown very close. There's been so much trauma in my life that I've spent my entire, and I didn't realize this until recently, that I, I basically um, have lived in flight or flight mode. And my amygdala gets, amygdala gets triggered very, very quickly. And then basically at that point, I, sh I shut down. And because I was a product of that generation. When I came out, I was in my early 20s. I met a beautiful sweet soul who four and a half years later died in my bed. He went from a strapping 200 plus pound cowboy to weighing maybe 95 pounds when he died. He was ravaged by this disease. And, you know, I came out when they were whispering in alleys about this thing called GRID. They weren't even calling it AIDS. They were calling it gay-related immune deficiency. And the first time I ever went to a bar, they were giving you drinks out of plastic cups. And so you, that's when it all began. Basically, you're in fight-or-flight mode um, all the time. And you just come out, and you are wanting to understand who you are, and you are wanting to be intimate. But being intimate is complicated because you basically feel like that you, you, you gain intimacy at some point through you know, a sexual encounter. And that's like playing Russian roulette. So you essentially um, spend your life basically trying to deny intimacy, saying, I, don't, I can't have it. I, I've got to protect myself. If this is what it means, then fine. Living is more important than being alive, which I'm not so sure anymore, but regardless. Um, and then you get to the point where you're so desperate for a connection with another person that you literally feel like you've taken a pistol and put a, a bullet in the chamber and spun, the, spun it and held it to your head. And then you go and you have an encounter with somebody and then you sit back and you wait. And when you're prone to anxiety, so you can imagine what that's like. So I came out and shortly after I came out, I was transferred to San Francisco. And I remember the first time I walked through the Castro, every second or third man was walking with a cane, looking 20 or 30 years older than they should have looked. It was, you know, I mean, what, what can you say to that? I mean, I still haven't unpacked everything, you know, the, the fallout. The other day I was on Facebook and someone posted a vignette. It was like a, a closing scene where this woman basically confronts a friend's mother, a friend who died, and she talked about, and she blamed the mother. She blamed the mother for everything. She said, this is your fault. And the mother was like, you know, not having it. And then this woman broke down and said, this is why it's all your fault. And this is why not only his death is your fault, but they're all, it's all, all their deaths are your fault. And it was really, really powerful. And it was right. It was on the nose. And then as she's walking off with her, you know, her back is to the mother, the mother, all she hears in the background is, I didn't know. I've, I've seen the whole series and I know exactly the scene you're talking about. We had some really life altering experiences. You know, my mom, we speak every day. Uh, you know, I am a mama's boy. And I can remember 
she adored Bruce. She absolutely adored Bruce, um, my partner who died. And I mean, so much, she was so good to him. We moved into an apartment that they owned. They charged us pennies for rent because we were just impecunious. And Bruce had to leave work and he was just getting these monthly stipends, governmental stipends that were just nothing. You know, it was SSI. And, um, but she literally would go around her house and he, he, he was a tradesman. She would go around and break stuff in her house and, have, and, and pay him to fix it. And um, that's, I mean, she just really adored him. But I remember her being so frightened one night, so afraid for me that she begged me to leave him because she was afraid that I was going to die. And I know, and we, I brought it up years later and she was horrified. I said, it was just in a moment of panic and something had happened. I don't know what it was, but you were just, you know, you were petrified. So, yeah, just, it formed me. It formed me. And that's what makes it tricky with writing because I have such a hyperactive amygdala. <laughs> My writing triggers me. What about your writing triggers? Yeah. Here's the funny thing is I, I can't help it. I suffer performance anxiety. I just do. Even though I know this is a conversation between the two of us and um, that it is being recorded and that you will be editing it, I'm still standing outside myself, as you said, listening to what I'm saying and just rolling my eyes at myself. This is just the nature of performance anxiety. Not only do I have performance anxiety, but I also have attention deficit disorder. And so I was one of those gymnasts who, in the gym on a daily basis, could astonish people. But gymnastics really as a competitive sport is about discipline. And part of the discipline is doing routines over and over and over, and it's repetitive and, and boring. And I just could not get my brain into it. And I was one of those crazy gymnasts who would literally mix up their routines on the competition floor. You just don't do that. So yeah, I was a horrible competitor. I was a terrible competitor. Even despite that, I still you know, managed to win a national title. I was an NCAA All-American. I was a Pac-10 champion. I was a Big 8 champion. But I was prone to injury. That can be unpacked psychologically. I, I was just incredibly undisciplined. I was all over the place. And in a way that's reflective in my writing because I demand so much of myself. And I demand that every time I sit down in front of my laptop or my, or my computer, you know, to write words, that they be perfect words, even if it's only in the draft stage. And if the words aren't perfect, I keep pushing them to perfection to the point where I can actually make myself so crazy that I'm screaming at my computer. I trigger, my amygdala gets triggered then and basically I can't think. And so um, I have this incredible love-hate relationship with writing because I, when I'm in it and I'm involved, it's really an incredible experience, but it can, it can turn on a dime and it turns on quite a few dimes. Yeah, and I, I think it's, um, you know, it's like when you said when you're in it, it's an incredible experience. Um, does it feel like you're in flow when you're in it? Like, do you lose sense of time and sort of sense of... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You lose sense of, of time in, in two ways. One, you know, if it's moving forward, 
all of a sudden you look up and it's the end of the day and you forgot to eat lunch. And then there are times when you are struggling so monumentally that you look up expecting it to be the end of the day and it's only been, and only five minutes has passed. So I think I'm victimized by this common affliction among writers, you know, um, but I think that um, I take it to extremes. I definitely take it to extremes. I just have to accept that as part of my journey. Well, I think it's a little bit kind of like, as you were describing before, like I remember floor routine when I was, you know, a gymnast and I, one of the things I always really struggled with was, you know, you can't step outside these, these boundaries. Like when you, when you land your, all right, the tape, yeah, the, 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 the L-shaped tape. Um, and I remember being so focused on not stepping any of your heel in the L-shaped tape that I don't really remember some of the moves in between. You're just so focused on sticking that, that landing and not losing your balance once you do. And so it, it, it begs the question, like when you're in performance, and this goes back to what you're saying, the, when you could be a little more spontaneous in the performance, you sometimes had better results, I imagine. I could, be, I could be wrong versus the routine. So I guess one question is, metaphorically, is it the same with writing? Or not the same, is it similar with writing for you? Well, yes and no. When you're doing gymnastics, the personalities, the character type that excels at gymnastics is the character type that relishes competition. I relished winning, but not the competition to get there. And I had performance anxiety around the competition. And so I had a very spotty career. But you have people like Simone Biles, who it's clear that she just goes into this competitive zone and the competition is the thing for her. And the proof is in the pudding with people like that. When she emerged on the international scene in 2013, her very first competition, before she was even a senior, she simply fell apart and they actually pulled her from the competition um, so she wouldn't hurt herself. She's never lost since. She's never lost a competition since. She is, in gymnastics, that's, that's really considered, almost would be considered to be impossible because inconsistency is built into the sport. Um, she's never lost. And it, it's almost unfathomable what she's managed to accomplish. And you, you, had you had mentioned really briefly, you said you love the winning part of it, but yeah. the competition part wasn't necessarily as thrilling. Um, uh, of course you love the winning part of it. We all love the winning part of it, right? I haven't thought about it in such a long time. I'm, I'm an unknown, in, except in, in gymnastic circles. But in gymnastic circles, I was, for a period, I was a bit of a phenom because I was doing things that other gymnasts around the world simply weren't doing. I can remember back um, in the um, early 80s, I was training a triple back on floor before they had the big spring floors. I can I, I remember performing a a skill called a, a, a double layout, you know, uh, on a tumbling skill. I performed a double layout on a Resolite wrestling mat. Wow. There's like no <laughs> spring in that. <laughs> Zero yeah, spring in that. Might as well be doing it off concrete. <laughs> and I performed a double layout on that. And um, yeah, so I could, I had, I had some skills. I had, you know, I was, I had some talents, but um, yeah, but then I just, I could not do the grind. I couldn't do the grind. You know, 
the women on the U.S. gymnastics team, you know, can train, will train 12, 15 beam routines a day. If I could get through one or two parallel bar routines and doing a parallel bar session, you know, that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, it's just unfathomable. Parallel bars were always the hardest for me. Um, One, because I found them not very what's the word I'm looking for? I would be, I would say rewarding. Like there was, there's an aspect of the, the soaring, the leaping, the jumping, whatever. I, I just found the parallel bars for me never, never gave me that depth. Um, it was much more about discipline than it was about, uh, the thrill for me. I, I was much more of a high bar guy, the rings, um, floor, um, but the parallel boss, when they said, okay, do the routine over there, it's like, I would just go, uh, like. What about pommel horse then? I was not very good at pommel horse either. What's really interesting is um, my my legs would fly very high in the air. I would just get super bored really quickly. I was like, okay, yeah. once I've done one rotation and I've heard, wow, you know, you brought your, you brought your, your leg up really high there, great job. Once I sort of hit those whatever, milestones i was like okay now now this is boring for me i just didn't um yeah, that sounds a little like me <laughs> we were probably very similar in that sense um i chased the excitement of it i chased the part of it where at some point when you're done with everything you can do on a physical plane you're just left to soar through the air and hope you land in a way that you don't break something yeah. and i remember the last performance I think I was allowed to do, and I was pretty young. So I was probably, I think I was like nine, 10, 11 at this, you know, at the, when I was doing, um, doing stuff at Bannon's gym in Houston. And I think I was in a trampoline routine. There was a meet of some sort, I guess if they called it meets back then, I don't remember. Yeah. And my mom had never come to any of these meets before. Um, she had always sort of let me go with a friend or whatever. And I learned years later, there was a reason she didn't want to because she didn't want to see her kid getting hurt. Well, this is the one time she came and I was doing trampoline and I think I went back to do, I, I must've been trying to do a double back or something off like a, and I, I don't know if I over-rotated, under-rotated, I can't remember. Anyway, I landed on my head and you know, you kind of do one of those, <laughs> like you watch your, you watch your neck kind of do the, the little, like a doll. And I recall Scott, my mom screaming from the bleachers and this was a this was a woman who I never really knew to get uh, excitable about a kid getting hurt. Um, she was never a, a woman who really kind of got involved with a lot of sports things with her kids. Um, we were all on swim team as well, and you know th- there was never any anybody cheering from the side of the the pool. But I remember hearing that scream from across the gym, almost echoing off the metal, you know, the sort of Quonset hut feel of it. And it was like, I, that's when I knew I was done. I just, I mean, now luckily there was no injury, but it was so interesting because later on, you know, when I finished and I came back, my mom was like, you're done. We're like, I'm, we're, we're not doing this again. Like, and she pulled me out of gymnastics. Um, and I just, it's so interesting because I remember being sad, not that I was done with gymnastics. I remember being sad that I wasn't going to get to kiss the air the way that I used to get to kiss the air off rings, off bar, off trampoline. Yeah, uh, gymnasts have this have a very different relationship with gravity. 
it gives you physical confidence. I lacked confidence in every other aspect of my life. But one thing I was confident in was, was my ability, my body's ability to move through space. For me, when I was competing at the elite level, I think what, I mean, there, it just, it's all very complicated because gymnastics is a very political sport. I remember going to the U.S. championships, I think they're in, in Indianapolis, and it was a really good competition for me. I rocked. That was back when we did compulsories as well. And um, it was a build up to an Olympic year and I had a stellar competition, but people who are proving quantities, you notice it, especially during the compulsory round, they are, they are, they're favored in the compulsory round. And I went through the compulsory round and I had a really good competition and I wasn't being rewarded for it. And I remember then going into optionals and starting on floor exercise and I had the highest score in the nation on floor exercise. Um, I had a really, really cool routine. Um, this was back in the Mitch Gaylord, um, you know, Bart Connor era. You know, I scored a 9.85, which was the highest score in the optional round on floor exercise. But I wasn't even, I, but I didn't qualify to event finals because they were just really tight with my compulsory score. Same thing with vault. I scored the highest score in the nation on vaulting and uh, a 9.9. And um, again, didn't make it to the, to the event finals. And I, was re and I really struggled with that. I made the national team, but I was basically put on the second tier of the national team where basically you're just, you know, they give you a couple trips here and there, you know, to, just to kind of keep you busy, but you're not really a contender. And, um, and then the following year, um, I had an accident that you know, ended the ended gymnastics for me, ended my career. Well, let's, let's, let's put this in perspective. Let's put this in perspective. You break everything up by Olympic cycles when you're at that level, right? So, you know, her, her calendar is from one Olympic to Olympics performance to the next Olympic performance. So she has a four-year period in which she's prepping for the Olympics. And every aspect of her life is geared toward, you know, excellence at the Olympics. And she's training or doing something training-related six, seven, eight hours a day. If you add it all together, the cumulatively speaking, for about two and a half minutes. She's focused, you know, six or seven hours a day. And then, and then even when she's not in the gym, you know, it's still gym-centric. Um, so basically 24 hours a day, it's gymnastics, gymnastics, gymnastics for four years to then basically, you know, for, for two and a half minutes worth of work. It's kind of insane. And, you know, and, and even she brings it up, she goes, you know, we're kind of mad. You know, we're kind of crazy people, but, you know. Have you seen, there's a documentary, I believe, on HBO Sports called The Weight of Gold? Yeah. Um, it's actually really well done. Um, it, it essentially interviews a series of Olympians um, kind of just after or after they've completed an Olympics. And it's this really interesting investigation into where their, their, their body and their mind goes when they're not competing. And it's really fascinating to, to hear their stories about the, the in-between, you know, you've done it. Well, what happens when you've done it and you've won it, then what, right? There's a lot of, there's, there's not much attention paid to the then what. There's always this attention paid to get there. And it was really, really moving documentary um, funded by Michael Phelps um, to kind of do an investigation into 
what happens to these athletes after we see them do everything they do? Um, and, you know, Michael Phelps has had his own mental health journey. It's difficult. So I spent 15 years of my life basically being gymnastics centric and having this really crazy career, but having some success and having a goal. And then um, you go to a competition and you have an accident and they say your career is over. And, you know, there's this huge disconnect. You don't know who you are or what you are or where you're going to go. And you spend quite a bit of time in this kind of fugue state. What you're making sense of it first and then you're searching. So that's it. You're touching on what some of this documentary gets into um, a little bit. And it also goes into the the what happens after the clapping stops. Right? What happens when you because you because you, your your point is really a strong one. They spend four years. Every minute of your four years is boxed time boxed into getting to that point where you have the performance, the two minutes. But, but what's really interesting is nobody talks to them about, okay, then what happens when you pack up your bag and you get on a plane and you go back home and you have to make that decision or it's made for you. Do you come and do this whole four years again? Or do you, or do you go back to being a person or maybe not even back to being, do you, do you become a new person that you've never been before? So it's really, I, I found myself very emotional watching this, um, this documentary. I was in a movie. <laughs> it's a movie called American Anthem with Mitch Gaylord. Mitch was a darling of the 84 Olympics because he's this, you know, beautiful man. The U.S. men's gymnastics team wins gold. You know, this is the, this was the, um, you're the, you know, Soviets, you know, boycotted. And, um, yeah, so he came out as this little media darling and, um, immediately was signed on to do this movie called American Anthem. And the, the, they signed on the guy as a director, the guy who directed um, Purple Rain, Prince's movie. And I can say that probably it is in the bottom 2% of any movie, all movies ever made. But one thing, the director did not even know what gymnastics was. And he just, made, it was a parody of a movie because it, it just it just so missed the mark oh yeah i was in a movie i think there's about half a second of me on parallel bars in the background <laughs> no <clears throat> i got a call from one of my teammates that we come down to the gym real quick they're, they're auditioning people for this movie that mitch is going to be in and i was like well what does that have to do with me he goes because it'll be fun they're they're taking us out to arizona and he said it'll be a blast so i went down to the gym and there's this woman there her name was mickey conti and she was the you know, she was the talent agent and she said oh hi okay so she, got she goes okay do something it's, well what she goes i i don't know just do something show me some gymnastics so i did a tumbling pass and she said okay you're in and, she's, <laughs> and there were like three of them you know there were just two of us it was me and mark um and they flew us to arizona actually we flew separately and I was put on a plane to Arizona, and I can't remember where, but um, I was picked up at the airport, and I was driven to this hotel. And it was actually a lot of fun because it was just a, it was a hotel full of gymnasts from all around the country, people that, you know, that was my tribe. 
And I was like, oh, good to see you, big hugs. And then they said, okay, we need everybody up at the bus out front at 6.30 because we need to be on set at 7, so you need to get to bed. And so I go to bed, I wake up, get up at 6.30, they shove us onto a bus, and then they drive us down to this derelict bread factory that they turned into the set. And then, this is brilliant, they give us gymnasts coffee and donuts for breakfast. And then they said, if you hear your name called, you need to go speak to the director. And I got in maybe two bites of donut and a little bit of coffee when my name was called. And I went to meet with this guy and he um, said, I need you on parallel bars while um, Janet Jones is going to be on floor exercise doing a floor exercise routine. And you're going to be in the background on parallel bars. I said, okay, what do you want? What do you want me doing? Because I need a full routine. I said, oh. Okay, it's seven o'clock in the morning. I've had two bites of donut and a little bit of coffee. I said, let me warm up because no, we don't have time to warm up. Okay, um, well, let me set the equipment and just do a couple of screens. He said, no, we're going now. When you see, he said, there's this red light and a green light. When the light turns green, I need you doing a full gymnastics routine. So at seven o'clock in the morning, I did a full difficulty parallel bar routine. Landed it. You hear the word cut. And he said, okay, do it again. And I think maybe I did it seven, eight times. And on the seventh or eighth time, I was getting a little tired. And on the eighth take, um, I fell. And you hear this cut. And he actually came over and just kind of looked at me and then turned around and said, okay, do it again. <laughs> it was just weird. It was a weird experience. I'm getting, so what happened, we were there for two weeks. I was a supernumerary. I was just doing gymnastics in the background. Almost everything was cut. Um, and then I was like, this is baloney. I, I flew back home when, you know, at the end of my two week contract. And I got a call from Mickey Conti saying, we need you back on set for another two weeks. And um, I declined. And she said, I hope you know this is going to ruin your, your chances for a movie career. <laughs> and I just. Uh, so yeah, I don't have an IMDb. Now my friend Mark does because for some reason he was a sly little booger. He actually slipped, there was a scene where they cut to him, he's supposed to make an expression on his face and they're going to cut away. And he actually said a word and they kept it. And I guess if you have a spoken part, you have to get a screen actor's card. So anyway, watch the movie. You won't see me, but in the credits, so I might go watch it. Yes, I, I might. Um, well, I actually think it's kind of a perfect, that's kind of a perfect segue into talking about writing because you talked about all this work, right? So that goes into all the stuff that has to be cut out <laughs> for then something that you're like, okay, look at what I have. <laughs> um, so yeah, if, if, if you're okay with it, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about writing. Yeah, without kind of beating the analogy of the gymnast thing. Um, how did you get into writing? I mean, have you always been writing? I was a gymnast. And then at the time that I started writing, I owned a small insurance arbitrage brokerage house. It's in a very um, specialized industry. And I was working primarily within my community, within the LGBTQ community, and all my clients were AIDS patients in San Francisco. And my work was meaningful. I was helping 
I was bringing quality of life to people who were dying. And I was bringing security, you know, to people who were dying. But they were all dying. And it was really meaningful work. But then my work shifted away from working with people who had catastrophic illnesses to high net worth seniors. And it kind of lost its meaning for me. And then my industry was kind of going through a lot of transition. And I was really struggling with my work and really actually coming to hate it. And that part of my journey ended in a lawsuit that I had to bring forward against a client who I had stopped doing all my work to handle this particular account, which was, it was a very large account where nobody else in the industry could move it. I was able to, because I'm a creative thinker and to reward me that client and the vendor with whom I moved the client through colluded to not pay my commission. And it was going to basically bankrupt me. And when we had this conversation, I said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to have to seek restitution through, you know, through, through the legal proceedings. If you don't, I'm going to have to sue if you don't pay me. And they basically said, if you decide to sue, we'll make it our stated objective to ruin your company. So I sued them the next day and it was a two, two and a half year process. Um, it went through um, an arbitration proceeding in Philadelphia. And on the day of the closing arguments, I, I was really dealing with some anxiety issues. I was having anxiety attacks during the proceeding. And after the closing arguments, I went back to my hotel, had a mother of all anxiety attacks. I completely decompensated and went into the bathroom got myself under a cold shower, just kind of was just trying to kind of reconstitute myself. And um, this is going to sound really arbitrary and strange, but it's absolutely true. This weird sentence popped into my head. This is a really ADD thing. That's weird sentence popped into my head and I started toying with it and it wouldn't go away. So I got out of the shower, dried off, went and wrote it on a piece of paper packed my bags and flew home. And the next day I couldn't go to work. I just could not bring myself to go to work. So I started cleaning my house. And at one point I got that briefcase out. I was cleaning it out and I saw that piece of paper and I read that sentence. And I just, for some reason, it just, you know, caught my attention. I sat at the counter and I'm reading it and I tapped my finger and I added another sentence and, and I added another sentence. And um, two and a half months later, I'd written 500 pages. That was Lemon Collie. That was the first iteration of Lemon Collie. And so that we're clear, you can imagine what a horrible mess it was, right? It was, it was a mess, but it hooked me. And it allowed me not to think about this other stuff that was going on in my life. So I really just threw myself into, into it. And that's really, so it's kind of like an act of desperation more than anything. That's how I started writing. What I find really, um, poignant about that explanation is as you were describing it, it's sort of this escapism, like you wrote one sentence at a time into escapism. That's the reason I love the book, because <laughs> it allowed me escapism. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's it. definitely it's a good way to describe it. It is basically a place to which you can escape. Yeah. Um, and I also think it's really I mean, just the fact that you stated it, like one sentence came into your head during a cold shower 
stayed with you. You wrote it down. You had no clear picture of what that sentence was going to do, be any of that at the time, right? But you knew enough to say, just put it somewhere. Well, there's a second story. Sure. God, I can't. These are, these are nuts stories. I mean, um, but the second story that draws it all together, I also ended up writing that particular story um, because of a botched date. Um, and I think it's actually, if you, if, uh, I don't know if you got one of the earlier copies of Lemon Collie, it actually talks about this in the question and answer session in the back. Um, I had um, met this guy I was really interested in, and um, he wasn't having it. <laughs> he was just was, didn't seem to be particularly interested. Um, but I managed to cajole him into uh, a coffee date, and somewhere in the middle of the, the coffee date, he said, you know, he actually shut the conversation down. He looked at me, and he got this smile, and he kind of nodded. He goes, you know, and he pointed at me, he goes, I think the two of us are destined to be really good friends. Which is, you know, which sucked. <laughs> and I mean, what else can you say to that, right? So I um, said thank you and goodbye. <laughs> and I got in my car and I drove home with my tail tucked between my legs. And But I just, he was really cute. And he was so charming. And so I started thinking about how I could get his attention. And... Um, so I actually came up with Annie and Elspeth while I was driving home, the, you know, the, two, the alpha protagonists in Lemon Calling. And I ha imagined Annie writing a letter to Elspeth, talking about her friend Scott's dilemma and how he has a crush on somebody that, who doesn't seem to want to reciprocate. And um, I, when I got home, I wrote that letter and I emailed it to him, to his work email address. And the next day, um, he called me, and he was just laughing. And I could hear people laughing in the background. He said, "This letter." He said, "This letter." He said, "What's up with this letter?" And I said, "I don't, I don't know." And he goes, "He goes, he goes. Everybody loves these letters." He goes, "We need to know more about Annie and Elspeth." And and he said, "We need more letters." And um, he said, "Elspeth needs to write back." I said, "I'm sorry, but she can't." And he said. Why not? I said, because um, it's your turn, basically. And he's, well, he said, so are you telling me that I have to write back to you as Elspeth? I said, yeah, well, if you want another letter from Annie. So, like, you know, the next day I got his, a letter from Elspeth, wrote back to Annie. And then when they just started writing each other, writing back and forth, and I just, it just kind of established a tone and an idea in my head. So, um, you know, that's how the novel became epistolary in the first place, right? You have these, it's really grounded in these letters between Annie and Elspeth. And then um, when I'm looking, digging into their personalities, I'm seeing Annie as, you know, she lives in San Francisco. She's off Dolores Park. She's, she's like San Franciscans are, she's quirky. She only wears, she wears her version of drag, right? Her, you know, she only wears Victorian clothing in modern day San Francisco, but she's so charming that she gets away with it. And then I kept seeing Elspeth as being this dowdy old school marm. And when I thought of her as a school marm, I realized I had to move her back a hundred years in time. And so you have these letters being written back and forth between these two women across time. And how do I, how did I make that work? And where do I, you know, where's the plot, you know, what kind of plot can move that forward? So that's, so yeah, it was desperation with work 
and a botched day. I also think it's really amazing how in both of those instances, it kind of goes back to what you said before, which is that the power of sort of separating, your, separating yourself out of your body and actually giving yourself a third person perspective back at you. So like the example of a botched date, you know, you, you took a third person perspective of the experience for yourself, um, which is really kind of powerful <laughs> because- well, I don't know if it's powerful or not. Well, it, it ended up being powerful because I got- It's a generous. Day. I got a second Would you say it's it. generous? Yeah, there you go. And a third, we ended up being together for four and a half years. But the funny thing was, he was it was almost like it was a prognostication because when he said we're destined to be good friends, we were better suited as friends than as partners. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sure you know, since you did read that and you read the back, that this person I'm talking about ends up being Edmund in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Edmund, this personified Edmund with all his demons, you know, his being a functional drug addict. And what makes it um, even more poignant in a way is after the book was published and um, my ex, he was so excited that he was actually a part of the book. And I had moved to New Zealand at that point, And he was actually going to be flying out to his first international trip. He was going to come out and visit Mike and me. And we were going to show him around New Zealand. And he was off to get his passport. And then two weeks before he showed up in New Zealand, I got a call from his sister. And saying that he had overdosed and died. So sometimes, you know, life trumps fiction. Well, oftentimes I find for me, but anyway. Wow. But then I sent the book out into the world. Yeah, he did. And I'm not even sure, I don't even, not even sure I remember how it found its way across my radar, but I'm glad it did um, because I read it nonstop. I think I read it over the course of like a night and part of a day. Uh, it just astonishes me that something that I wrote under those conditions can actually capture somebody's attention. Well, that's that's the magic of it. Like that's my belief is that you wrote it under you wrote it under conditions where, like you said, sometimes life is stranger than fiction. Um, and it sounds like you were writing it as, I mean, I use the word escapism, maybe that's not exactly what it was, but essentially, as you were saying, you were unpacking things that were coming to you in your mind that maybe didn't, you know, linear, in a linear way make sense at the time, but then it just kept growing and becoming this gift between you and Todd and even others. Um, well, I can tell you, the axis of, of, of the book is, is marginalization because if you look at all five of the the main characters, they're all they're they're all representative of some kind of marginalization. Um, Annie, who's dealing with that chronic illness, um, Elspeth, who's senescence, you know, and how people like to kind of you know that makes them uncomfortable. Um, you have Edmund, who's um, dealing with being a functional drug addict. And then you have the character I'm not even going to say, <laughs> the character that I base myself, an intrinsic element of my life, marginalization. And so that's what I think I was really kind of process. But I think it was kind of therapy. And I was, you know, therapy through fiction. I don't know. But I went at it cold. And, 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 and when I look back on it, that was a mistake. I see that as a mistake. I mean, it's, it's good because I did it. 
I wasn't being rigorous in my study of the craft. I was just shooting off the hip. Maybe taking a little too much pride in the fact that I was, you know, they, they say there are two types of writers. There are, there are pantsers and there are plotters. And pantsers are people who write by the seat of their pants. And plotters are people who think it through and outline, you know, and then they kind of establish what the, the arc of the book is, and then they begin to write. I just, that's, ADD wouldn't allow me to do that. And frankly, I think both, both techniques are wrong anyway. But um, so, yeah, I just basically, it was a stream of consciousness approach to writing. And then what happened was I would go back and I went back in and reverse engineered it to make the arc work properly, rising action, you know, falling action, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But I, if I had been more aware of the fact that there is a craft to writing, then I think I would have approached it differently. I can say, you know, without pause that um, if I wrote that book now, today, it would be a very different book. Um, okay. When you are writing, you are a writer, you know, that's, that's it. You know, you don't have to hit a certain milestone to be able to call yourself a writer. You are a writer. Um, and when you write, you do start picking up craft. Um, you know, you, through communication, it seeps into the corners on social media. You're talking to other writers and you are picking up craft and you are learning things. But at the same time um, that you're learning craft, you are picking up crutches and it's really important that you can take a step back and look at yourself and figure out what is part of your craft and what is a crutch and I relied on a lot of crutches throughout um, writing Lemon Collie um, because I, I probably rewrote it seven times it was, a, it was a long process before I finally you know was able to land an agent and then and then get the book published. Um, and my crutches were, I relied too much on my creative mind. And the other one was, I discovered that I had a certain facility for words. And I could put words on the page in a certain way that people appreciate the art, you know, of that sentence. Um, but there is appreciating, you know, a work and responding to it are two completely different things. And so whenever I was moving through the plot and I was like struggling, thinking, how do I move this here to this? Because I want to get to here. And so I want to try to move the plot. And, and I wouldn't think it through comprehensively enough. I would rely on my facility with language. And so think, oh, that's a really pretty paragraph. People are going to notice that. And then maybe they won't notice that the transition, you know, was like, what? Wait a second. Um, so the, those were two of my major crutches. So when the book was given to the world, when it, you know, had, you know, went, went out and it was published, um, and my agent said, okay, let's figure out what we're going to be working on next. Um, I had to do, some, I, had to do some, I mean, that was crazy. I had some really, really serious thinking. And that was when I started to really kind of pay more attention to the craft of writing. Um, for, because one thing for me, um, I always have to up my game. 
always, always, always. And um, I wanted to make sure that my sophomore effort wasn't a flop because that's a big thing. So when Lemon Collie was released, um, I got a call from my agent saying, do you have any works in progress? And I said, well, yeah, I've got like four or five um, ideas that are in various stages of development. And she said, okay, can you send those to me? Um, can you send me a sample of the writing and a synopsis if you have it? I said, well, yeah, sure, but why? She goes, because we have to choose your next project, which that really threw me because I didn't realize this you know, was going to be you know, a joint decision. I just thought I'd write what I write. And she said, no, no, no. She goes, your life's no longer your own you know, now that you've already published. She was saying it jokingly, but it was, but yeah, that was my response. I was going, yeah, okay. So I, um, like I said, I had four or five works in progress, each in various stages of development. I had a companion book to Lemon Collie that had already written half of it. And I could see this entire story arc. So I gave her a sample of that writing and that synopsis, then a book based on Christian, um, and um, something that happened to him in, in, in his early life. And that one was pretty well developed as well. Then the last one was simply an idea based on a really quirky protagonist. And one page of writing, and then she called me back like two days later, and she said, oh my God, you have to do this last one. And all I had was this idea for a quirky protagonist and that one page of writing, which was very, very different from the, from the narrative style of Lemon Colony. And it's like, okay, well, all right, well, what do I do? She goes, just do your thing. She said, I want upmarket. I want whimsy. I want a little dollop of magical realism. Just do what you do. I was like, okay. So I sat down in front of my computer and I started doing my pantsing thing you know, writing by the seat of my pants. And I had, I had this character and then I created his, you know, his, his bet noir and um, I'm just typing and I'm laughing and I'm developing these characters and I'm, and I pop out five chapters in like, I'm guessing four or five days. I mean, I in record time and it's just coming right out of me. And um, then I put together a, a synopsis and I sent it to her and um she, she was very responsive. I think she called back the next day. She said, and she's laughing. She goes, oh my God, this is, she said, this is hysterical. And we're talking about how funny it is. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're getting into it. And she goes, and it's just, she said, honestly, I think you could write anything and I'll just, you know, and I would love it. She said, but I said, well, oh, yeah, what? She goes, you can't write this. And, and I'm like, why, why can't I? And she said, because it's off brand. And the idea that I'd even have a brand after having only written one book was just, I mean, the idea that I'd even have a brand, I was that green as a writer. <laughs> so um, <coughs> I was like, well, what is my brand? And then we started talking about what that would be. And I was like, well, that kind of is this. And she goes, this is too much too Terry Pratchett, Scott, you know? And I was like, I love Terry Pratchett. But um, she said, no, I need more of this and this and this. So she hung up and I honestly freaked out. And 
I didn't know, to, I kind of froze up. I didn't know what to do. So I ended up, I was just kind of browsing around on Google and I ran across this website for someone, this kind of like a writing coach. And the stuff she was saying just sounded interesting to me. So I had a conversation with her and ended up retaining her to help me develop an idea that was on brand because I was so afraid I would be off brand. And we worked together for about a month and a half. I paid her a lot of money. And um, and I put together another five chapters. And when you look at them as a snapshot, they're beautiful chapters and they're beautifully written. Um, but then we put together, she put together, basically threw together this 15 page synopsis for me that even I didn't understand. And she said, Scott, this is just development at this point. I'm, I promise you, your, your agent's going to eat this alive. And so I was like, okay. So I sent it to my agent and I got a, you know, almost an immediate and resounding, what the F? Yeah. And I was like, now I'm really worried. So I then go back to the drawing board and I start developing. I am developing this character now. I'm starting to understand him better. And then um, I put together a um, four more chapters and uh, a synopsis that is starting to feel more substantive. And I send it to her and she calls me because bingo, this is it, this is the one. It's like, yay. And at that time, I was about to go on a second little leg of this book tour I had been doing, which is super fun, but believe me, not as glamorous as it may sound. It's just not. So, you know, whatever. Um, but it was fun. And um, she said, just go on your book tour. Don't even worry about it. I'm going to send this off to the publishing house. She goes, this is going to be the easiest yes in the history of yeses from them just, just go have fun. Calls me back two days later. They've turned it down. <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, honestly, Scott, I don't understand why. She said, you need to speak to your editor at, at Sourcebooks. So I, I called her and we had a conversation and oh, she had two concerns. The first concern being, she said, you know, our concern is that this book will actually um, constrict your audience rather than augment it. And I thought, okay, well, that's fair enough. I don't know how you can make that determination, but I understand that as an argument. And she said, and also, do you realize that your protagonist is male? Well, yes, because I wrote him. They turned the book down because my protagonist was male. And they had marketed me as an author of women's fiction, even though Lemoncholy at its heart is a time travel mystery. It was because we're following the emotional journey of Annie and Elsbeth, they were marketing it as women's fiction. So that got turned down. So then um, here I am with, you know, I've set aside 200 pages and, you know, six months of work. And um, I'm kind of a little lost. And at that point, I thought, you know what? This is so stupid. What am I, you know, why was I doing this in the first place? I'm going to write something that I want to write. Uh, and if my agent doesn't like it, and if my publishing house doesn't like it, then I'll just have to deal with it then. And in that, in that time period, it's going to sound so wimpy, but this was really um, 
this is really quite a you know a milestone for me. I met um, um, a woman by the name of Lisa Cron, and she is also a book coach. And you think I would kind of you know run away from that, but um, she had written some things and had a blog and I, I read a couple articles and she was talking about the concept of story in a completely different light. And I was so intrigued and it was so completely different to my approach that, you know, I had a, I had a conversation with her and ended up thinking, right, I'm just, I like this. You know, if nobody else likes it, fine. I, but I want to explore this because I decided at that point, I want to educate myself in the craft of writing. So, um, and basically, you know, she talks about um, where story resides. And when you are, I think all freshman authors do this, unless you've really, you know, spent years working on your craft first before you d d dive in. And um, you, all these book coaches and all, everybody who talks about story talks about story in terms of its arc, you know, the, um, inception point, the rising action, you know, the, the you, you go plot point to plot point to plot point, and then, you know, then you have a climax and then you have a denouement. And um, the thing is, that's all superficial. Um, that's just this, that's just the stuff that's happening. Where the real story resides is in the internal conflict. Because um, apparently, there's actually um, a proven science to story that it's story is actually built into the architecture of our brains that we actually learn through story and that story is basically about the internal conflict and making sense of those external elements so story does not begin with you know um any finding you know, um, getting this letter from Elspeth and then Elspeth writing back and then realizing they live a hundred years apart and trying to figure that out, trying to figure out why. And all of a sudden they realize that the reason they could talk to, talk to each other is because of this man who died a hundred years ago on um, Annie's timeline, but is going to be killed in four days on Elspeth's timeline. And so they need to stop this murder so they can keep talking, you know, kind of in a way. And, um, Instead, you know, the story it, um, resides in how Annie's making sense of that and how Elspeth is making sense of that. So story resides in the character. And so basically she wouldn't let me write anything. She made me basically just sit there with this, you know, with my alpha protagonist and my co-protagonist and, and just completely parse through who they are. And um, then... And she said, once that happens and you understand what their worldview is, you then understand how their life experience has made their world worldview, has, has teetered it off from the actual worldview. Their perception of the world is not a true perception because of their own experience. She calls it the misbelief. And um, the idea then is to target that misbelief and then to figure out how what their journey then is basically in moving forward to unwind that misbelief what happens externally you know it doesn't really matter it's how you unwind that misbelief and but that tells you what the plot points are ahead of time so yeah it was a completely different process yeah i i think it's so it's such a great reminder because one of the things that 
as as an aspiring writer, I also struggled with this aspect of the plot versus the characters. And one of the things that I remember doing early on, you know, also as a consultant who was traveling all the time and on airplanes, I used to do this thing where I would actually take one of my protagonists with me on a trip. So I would be on a six hour flight and I would intentionally say, what would Colin do? And all I would do is I'd take Colin with me that day, right? So Colin is a fictional character in a, in a story, uh, in a novel that I'm writing. But I would essentially, in my mind, reserve a seat with me on a flight the entire journey all the way through. And essentially what you do is exactly what you're describing, Scott, which is it's the misbelief that Colin has of the way the world is and the way the world should be. And then the world happens. And you find yourself saying, in this exact moment, all of this chaos happening around me or this thing happening, what would Colin do? Yeah, and it's, and it's not just what would Colin do, it's why he does, will do what he does. Because you have to, the, the um, when you, have you had an experience when you're reading a book and you simply can't stop reading it? Yeah, your first book. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, what, there's a physiological response. And, you know, that, the, the, there are many reasons you can, the reader can have that physiological response, but the physiological response is the release of serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin and, you know, and these things that, you know, actually, you know, you've become embedded in the protagonist's brain. And part of it has to do with empathy, but you are really riding that journey with the protagonist. And if, when the the best stories are when the reader's brain hooks up with the protagonist. So that's the objective, is to get the reader to hook up with my protagonist and then and let that be their journey. And again, it's just, you know, it doesn't matter what my protagonist is doing, as long as the reader is sit, residing in, you know, the protagonist's head. I can remember the first time it happened to me, you know, first time... Um, but for a different reason. It was because when I read Lord of the Rings. Actually, when I read The Hobbit. But when I read The Lord of the Rings, I was a member of the Fellowship. I was actually sitting there at the campfire with them, you know, and going, you know, with them on this journey. And it was a really powerful experience. And I, I've reread The Lord of the Rings probably 15 times. Right. You, you know, it's interesting that aspect of when you in a mental in a mental kind of construct, you hook up with the protagonist, like mind to mind, you hook up with the protagonist. It reminds me a little bit of I remember when I was on military duty and I was flying back and forth from Washington, D.C. to Hawaii quite a bit. And at the time I had picked up or somebody had given to me the first of the series uh, by Stieg Larsson, the girl with the, with the dragon tattoo. That's another one. And I, yeah, another one completely consumed, right? Uh -huh. And and what was really interesting about that experience, and I share this with some people when they when they talk about the power of writing, I was obsessed with Lisa Lisbeth Salander, the main character. Like I could not stop thinking about how she would do hacks, how she would be an Avenger, how she would help people. And I started to really sort of see the world through, you know, had I had I been in her shoes, had I come across uh, the, you know, the opportunity to right a wrong and things like that. Yeah. And then when he passed away, when Stieg Larsson passed away and the series came to an end, I remember 
Scott, I felt a yearning. Yeah. Like I yeah. was, I, to your point around the, the serotonin, the dopamine, like I was starving for this character. Yeah. And I, I, that is a beautiful experience. And then when they had, um, uh, when, you know, they continued the series, having another author write it. Yeah, D uh, David Lagenkreis. I, I, yeah. I couldn't bring myself to read it because I was too vested so in that particular Lisbeth Salander. It's interesting. I found myself struggling as well in the beginning. And then I went back and I read a little bit of the, the story within the story of why they continued it. And I don't know if I got this exactly right, but I'll, I'll try and surmise it. There was litigation between his partner, his girlfriend, Steve Larson and his girlfriend were not married, and his family, as I understood it. The family didn't want the series to go on. They just wanted to kind of end it. The girlfriend said, I knew him and I knew his wishes and he wanted it to go on. There was an epic battle that took place in Sweden in litigation, to my knowledge. The way that they came to, a, to an impasse, if you will, is they said, why don't we allow the fans of Stieg Larsson to submit manuscripts? And if there's one that both the family and the girlfriend decide is good enough, we'll continue the series with that. And that is how David France was chosen. Oh, well, that's, that, that's interesting. Okay, I'm, maybe I'll give it a shot. But So I continued but, reading it. But the thing is, that sounds, again, like, you know, a, a typical story narrative, the external arc. Yes. And only Steve Larson can produce Lisbeth Salander, you know, with any authenticity, right? Totally agree. And uh, totally the thing agree. that's so remarkable about Lisbeth Salander is she does some pretty awful things. But she's mm -hmm. still entirely sympathetic. And yep. you understand a person who, this person, as a reader, you're synced up with a person who is on the spectrum, you know, and you're kind of like that person yep. who's on the, on the spectrum yourself. That's, that's brilliant writing. It's absolutely brilliant writing. Yep. And so, you know, um, so yeah. So they, you know, bring it back to this. I, you know, if I rewrote Limicoli, I think it would be, an, it would have the same bones but it would have been grounded more in the internal in Annie's internal conflict, you know, and her making yeah. sense of the world around her and, you know, and, and Christian and Kappen and Ed mm -hmm. and Elspeth. Um, so I don't know. And I actually, I actually toy with the idea of trying it again, just and maybe calling it something else. Cause I think it'd be a really interesting exercise. Yeah. I mean, I think the character development part for me when I do, the writing and the deep writing, it's where I, where I find the most, the most colors to work with, if you will. It's just, you, you just have an infinite spectrum yeah. of what you can do yeah. with the character development. Yeah. That can be a problem too. <laughs> so, it can be, I imagine. Character development is you do, you have this infinite palette, but as you develop it, the palette starts to, you know, it starts to resolve. And as it becomes more coherent, you know, you your options moving outside that are, are limited. So, that, you know, that is a good thing. But the problem is I just, you know, I do, I, I, I'm prone to rabbit holes, you know, and, and, you know, when I'm moving through my manuscript and I, I see something, I all of a sudden, I, you know, my book digresses and I'm just following, and this is really cool stuff. And I work on it and I work on it and work on it. And then I go back and I have to cut it off at the, you know, cut it off and, and, and move it away and get, get back to the, you know, to the, to the core of the story. So, and, and I think that's what I struggle with most now um, is I'm still, 
I have to accept that I'm just too obsessive and that even when I'm in the draft stage, I'm, I have to kind of, you know, be perfect. And I, I can spend days on something and then realize that it's just has no part of the manuscript. There is um, a poem that's central to this plot, to the plot of my new manuscript. And I have rewritten that poem probably 30 times. <laughs> and I think I've got it now, but who knows? You know, I've just, I've just, you know, I've really bitten off a lot with this new manuscript. It's a really ambitious concept. Um, it's a really cool story. I really like where it's going. Um, I want so desperately to have it done so I can give it to the world. But at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, what I want to enjoy the journey. Right. It's a journey for you too. That's yeah, the thing. Is yeah, I think there's yeah, an I aspect enjoy, of this. I, I would enjoy is, the journey of writing, and I have to keep telling myself yeah. it's done when it's done. You know, I have this book eighty five percent done, but I've thrown away seven hundred pages, and you know, I've thrown away those four plots. And um, even though it's 85% done, I've gone back to the midpoint to um, rework it from the midpoint based on my better understanding of my co-protagonist because every incremental change in my understanding of her moves, changes the story arc. And if I don't go back, and if I try to write the, the climax without having gone back to, you know, the, the, the climax is going to miss the mark. Right. Basically. And it's not true to those characters either. And it's not true to the character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Will you, with this manuscript, will you still follow the same process as far as publishing and agent and all that? Or has there been a complete new look at how this is all done? Um, I think the, I think I won't know until I'm done. Um, the problem is, you know, is how much of my anticipation is delusion and how much of it, you know, is really grounded. And yeah, I, I, you know, I have, it's hard to think objectively when you're looking at your own work because you're working in a vacuum. Um, I remember when Lemon Collie released, you know, having, you know, having certain expectations and, and um, having the world smack me in the face over it. You know, um, my expectations were really unrealistic. Lemon Collie has set me up beautifully in that it's one of those books that it's rare for a debut novel to pay out its advance. So it's, it's a, it's a free flying bread and it's still paying me, you know, royalties to this day. Uh, uh, not big, but a check comes in and I get to look at it and go, wow, this book is still producing. So that has allowed me certain freedoms. When I turned in the, I had my contract with my publishing house, um, gave them, gave them right of first refusal on my next book. Um, when I turned in my pages and my synopsis to them and they said, and they turned it down saying, you know, basically because they wanted the protagonist to be a woman that freed me from that obligation. So if there were two, there were two elements to that. One is I didn't get an advance to live on while I was writing this book, but the, which is the downside. Um, the upside is that I'm completely at liberty. I have complete freedom. I, I, I love Lemon Collie. It was my first book. And I think there's a lot of beauty to that book. But I do know that I am a better writer now.
when I went out on my own and said, screw this, I'm going to ignore everything everybody said, and I'm going to write what I want, write what I, what I want to write. When I turned chapters into lead, to, to my agent, I turned them in knowing she was going to fire me. Because why waste your time on anyone who does the exact opposite of everything you said? She wanted the book grounded in San Francisco. I moved it to the backwoods of Louisiana. She wanted the um, um, book to have a female protagonist. My protagonist is male. I did everything she said not to do, but I knew for the first time that what I what th that this was right. This was actually good. Um, I didn't know it was going to end up going, but I could tell that the way I was developing it was really mature. So I turned in the pages thinking, all right, I'm going to have to find a new agent, which was really scary. She called me three days later and she said, I've just got to get out of your way. She said, I've just, we've just been getting, we've just gotten in your way. And then she said, I think this can be very special. I've never heard that, anything like that from my agent before. And so she said, I'm getting out of your way. And she's been true to her word. I haven't heard from her for two years. Which is good because I, I can just sit here in my little cubby and I can develop and develop and develop and work and push and I can do it at my own speed. I've had friends who've worked under contract and I've seen their work suffer for it. And I feel I'm too tied to this story to allow it to, to not be its very best. The downside, of course, is my insecurity. <laughs> I haven't heard from her in two years. Does she even remember my name? You know, that, that kind of thing. So um, I don't pay attention to the world, really. And, and I, um, it just works best for me. I sit in my cubby. I write. I don't pay attention to writing trends. Um, I do poke my head out of my writing cubby every once in a while, and I do take note of the world. And I do know that self-publishing is becoming a big thing again, and it's got a completely different dynamic, and it has piqued my curiosity. And when the time comes, I'm just going to explore all the options. But the problem is, you know, how can you be objective? So how much of your decision is based on ego and how much of it is truly objective? So I won't know until then. No, I, I think it's a... I think it's a very fair answer. And I also like the fact that you said, I'm not really going to consider that looking into that until I'm done with this portion of the writing, because I imagine it could get pretty busy in your head if you're thinking, all right, let me stop the actual writing to think about whether I self-publish or not. I mean, <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, Do you have, if you had any idea what it's like to sit in my head when I'm taking a shower, and I'm like, you know, oh, this is just kind of ridiculous. I mean, the places your head goes, you know, and all of a sudden you're accepting your Pulitzer, you know, you know, while you're taking a shower. And you're kind of, but the, that's the release of dopamine and that's serotonin and that's, you know, and it feels good and you know you're being silly, but it's still so satisfying. So that I can't do, make any decisions until I finish this book and, I, and I'm really able to objectively sit down and say, you know, you know, what can this book do and what do I want from it? Right now, I just want to finish it. That's all I care about. But I, you know, and I want to, but I want it to be its best version of itself. And I get in my own way. You know, I, you know, I trip over my own feet all the time. I fall down rabbit holes constantly. And I say, Scott, you're falling down a literary rabbit hole. And I keep digging. 
you know what I mean? Even though I acknowledge it, I go, hey, but I'm going to keep doing it because I can't. That's the obsessive side. Yeah. Writing is crazy, crazy, crazy business. Well, I'm personally very excited for the fact that you said it's 85% done. <laughs> Not putting any pressure on you or anything. Um, I am excited for that. Um, whenever that is. What does that mean? Right, because you know, eighty-five percent done means the book. I I can see the entire book, which is good. But what that means in terms of time? Who knows? Time is a construct. Yeah, yeah, but time is money, also, wasn't it? <laughs> I know that's true. <laughs> Apparently, my mom told me when I was a kid that I had a book in me. I didn't start writing until really I allowed myself to be financially secure which is such a luxury. I have most of my friends who are authors, they see themselves as authors, but they have a side gig to, you know, to pay for the electricity. Brilliant people, extraordinary writers who are living that kind of duality. I can be really selfish and I am, you know, I just, I, I set my alarm every morning for seven o'clock, seven days a week without fail and I get up and I make my coffee and I sit down in front of my computer and I reread the, the prior day's work and I embed it in my head and I make a little bit of changes and then I, make, I, you know, I do a little bit of work then I go eat breakfast then I come back and then I begin my real work. Seven days a week. It's crazy. It's obsessive. I find myself working at, you're always working. You know, even when you're in the shower. And the, but the problem with that is that it, you get stale. When you never give yourself a break, it's so hard for me to give myself a break because. And don't you have to go out into the world a little bit to sort of test some of that same stuff we were talking about before, which is like, you've got all this, you've got all the character development in your head and you do have to step away from the screen. I have my two, I have my two go-to people. I still have Lisa. Lisa is just, she's one of those people who's so smart. She's frightening and I adore her. And we talk every few weeks. And the problem is we have, we have so, we're so connected as people that we waste so much time talking about life. You know, and then, okay, okay, let's talk about the book a little bit now because I got to run. And then um, I have two very, very dear friends, my two closest friends in the world. One of them is based Elspeth off of him and he lives in San Francisco and he's a wackadoodle and I love him. And the other one is my bestie Ian, who is a librarian here in Auckland and I will call him probably a few times a week and say, do you have a minute? And he'll go close his office door to go, okay, go. And I'll just read to him and then just kind of get his, and get his take. You know, and the funny thing was when I first started doing it to him, asking to reading to him, I did not realize this, but I was really looking for affirmation. Because when he would make a suggestion, I would be like, <laughs> I must be offended. How dare you? I've been talking on this all week. But then um, I realized, you know, he, he has some really invaluable insights. So, yeah, they're, 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 they're kind of like my two bellwethers. Not my husband. <laughs> you can just see when I, I, I don't do it anymore, but it used to be when I would ask him if I could read something to him, you could just see that look in his eyes. 
you could just see, you know, the panic set in, you know, like a rat in a corner, just kind of trying to push themselves back into a wall. <laughs> so not a wise idea not- to ask your spouse to read your stuff. Well, yeah. And it's just, it's, it's funny. It's just not his thing. It's not his cup of tea. So, and that's fine. Um, we're, we, we're definitely winding up here. I, I didn't realize we're going to spend as much time, but I really appreciate your... I feel bad for you. Oh, no. Are you kidding me? This was like, this is definitely the best meeting of my day. Um, and you've given a lot of really good advice in the, in the, in the standpoint of writing and even the process for you. You know, if there's somebody that's going to listen to this once it's all packaged and put together, um, what advice would you give a an aspiring author, or if you were to go back to your younger self, knowing what you know now, and say, Scott, I'm just going to share a little bit of advice with you on this journey. Wow, that's so open-ended. Um, don't be in a hurry. Enjoy the journey. Writing is writing. The beauty of words, especially when you have a computer, is you can erase them. The craft to every art. As a layperson, when you walk into a museum and you see a painting, the craft of that art is comprehensively and immediately apparent. You see it and you appreciate that piece of art or you respond to it, that piece of visual art immediately. A book is not the same thing, is it? Um, A person who's reading a book, there's too much to it for them to actually, to wrap their head around the craft that created that thing. And it becomes a living organism and you're, your craft is always on a journey. You know, it, it, it is important to the development of a book, but you're going to be on a long road. You know, the journey is a long one and just appreciate the fact that it is. And, and that's okay. Just keep walking. I think that's great. I think the way you said a craft, the, the craft is on a journey. I mean, that's such a great way to be spacious. About it. Well, here's the funny thing. I have to make a choice. It's been five years since when Macaulay was released. I could have shoved out three or four books already. Those, all of those that I had started working on, I could have popped them out one after the other. Um, and, but I made a conscious choice because I did not see them as stepping up my game. I was trying to satisfy something else. And when I, I had to ask myself, what did I really, really want out of all this? And, and the person I'm most answerable to is myself. And I just cannot allow this sophomore effort to be anything less than it can be. And it's hard for me because I watch my contemporaries. I have some friends whose books released, their debuts released when mine did, who've who've already put out another book, maybe even two other books in the meantime. And there's that noise in your head, like they're thinking, what's going on with Scott? Has he just given up? Because I've been so quiet about it. You have to get rid of that noise also, whatever your personal noise is. You just have to get rid of it and, and write. And for heaven's sake, don't beat up on yourself, you know, which I spend half my day doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've heard people say a couple of times when, in passing, write the book you'd want to read. And that takes time. Ultimately, if you want to write, 
Just write words. Just start. Just start. Mm -hmm. Just start. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate this. It's a lot of fun. I know we were kind of all over the place, but this was a great conversation. <laughs> uh, well, it was fun. Thank you.